Well, we had a, a bit of a tragedy in the Deckard household this last week. My four-year-old son, who I swear is a genetic replica of Godzilla, uh, uh, took his older sister's Ken doll, you know, Ken, Barbie, and snapped his plastic neck. And the tragic demise of, of Ken, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, sparked uh, an angry older sister, and uh, naturally a, a, a loud yelling match ensued, and peace for a moment was lost in the Deckard house because um, the young one uh, took a piece of property of the older one, broke it, and, um, and broke the peace, causing some pain and frustration. Now, in the adult world, we don't go around breaking each other's Ken dolls or, or Barbie dolls or uh, step on people's Lego cities with a big foot. Um, but nevertheless, we live in a world in which we do injure and cause each other pain and sin against one another. Um, that's true out in the world. That's true in the church. That's true in marriage. It's true in the family. That we live in a fallen world where we oftentimes are inclined to be selfish and self-centered and we hurt each other. And some of us uh, deal with that hurt and pain and those injuries and those offenses. And others of us, we bury it. Uh, we bury it underneath the veneer of a happy life. Meanwhile, we're carrying around within us some, some deep wounds um, that continue to fester. Wounds of perhaps a, a lie from somebody close to you. Um, breach of confidence in a close personal friend. Betrayal, sexual abuse, physical abuse, divorce, rejection. And you're carrying that around, and, and it continues in this buried state to smolder with anger. The long-term effect of, of burying those injuries, burying those injuries and those wounds, and allowing them to smolder with anger is that in the end it will paralyze your ability to love people. Jesus taught us this, this uh, lesson in Matthew chapter 24 that where sin increases and where it will increase, that the love of many will grow cold. That one of the effects of evil and the pain and the injury that it causes is that it can snuff out, paralyze, or um, cool the flame of, of love. But it doesn't have to. One of the great truths in the Scripture is that we can overcome evil and the pain and in the injury with love, that love can triumph over evil. The question is how? How does love triumph over evil that causes deep pain, injury, and deep wounds? How does it happen? How does it work? Well, in these few descriptions of love that Paul gives us in the latter part of chapter, latter part of verse 5 and verse 6 of chapter 13, he shows us how love lives in an evil, painful world. How it lives and how it triumphs over the pain and the injury of evil. This is what he writes. I'm going to back up to verse 4 so you can hear kind of the list again. It never hurts to hear it again. But Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. That was four weeks ago. Those are basically the two, two broad faces of love, the one that absorbs bad stuff and then offers the good stuff. 
And he went on from that list to say it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. All of those five things are different faces of pride. We looked at last week, which are also opposite of love, that where pride exists, love does not exist. Now he moves on from this, this antithesis between pride and love to talk about how love deals with anger and how it deals with evil. He says, middle part of verse 5, he says, It is that his love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So this next little block of statements that love is not easily angered, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs, it doesn't delight in evil, and it rejoices in the truth, all hover around this idea of love living in the midst of an evil world an evil, painful world in which we carry around these injuries from one another. And it shows us how love can triumph by the power of God's Spirit over those injuries and over that anger. How? How does love love triumph over evil? And that basically is the question this morning. And I hope that you're going to hear this and take this personally, because I'd venture to say that there are many here who are carrying some things and allowing that anger to continue to smolder in their life and it's wrecking your life and you know it. Well, the first thing he says there that love does is it does not or is not easily angered. And I think what he has in mind here is that love doesn't flare up over the small, petty stuff of life. It isn't hot-tempered. But I do want to pause here and just um, make an important clarification. Uh, namely, that anger is not always wrong. In fact, at times, it is fully and morally righteous. Um, We're taught in the scripture that God um, exhibits anger in the face of injustice and sin and rebellion. It's part of his nature. I mean, from beginning to end, God exhibits anger when there is sin and rebellion and injustice, and he is perfectly righteous in doing so. In fact, he wouldn't be good if he wasn't outraged at people hurting one another or Uh, global tragedies or people mismanaging resources and causing groups of people to starve, that he wouldn't be good if he wasn't outraged by evil. In fact, one could argue, looking at it from the negative side, that Jesus was born because God was angry with us for the things that we have done. But the greater part of the story, and the positive side, is that Jesus was also born so that God's steadfast love could triumph over his righteous anger. Is that that Jesus was born, the God-man, so that God's steadfast love for his people would triumph over his righteous anger. I mean, that's what the cross is essentially about, is that Jesus was born to die to absorb God's anger so that he might then overflow uh, with love for us. It's not to say that God's anger and God's love are contradictory. Rather, to the contrary, they are perfectly resolved in the life and the death of Jesus, so that God's anger is satisfied and his love overflows. The point being is that that God is morally righteous in his anger. And we, my friends, are created in his image, which means that there should be in us a sense of anger and outrage when we witness firsthand evil and injustice. In fact, something's twisted in us if we can see something like a rape and not be morally outraged because we reflect the heart of God. There should be an anger there 
Which is probably why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, and he puts it in the form of a command, be angry, yet do not sin. In the face of evil, there should be and there is a justifiable moral anger that we should feel. All that to simply say that anger itself is not necessarily morally wrong. But I do want to say that anger is always dangerous. Anger is always dangerous. And here's why. Because we do not possess the moral strength to either manage or control it well long term. We do not have, the, we might think we do, but we do not have the moral strength to manage and control anger long term. What happens is that it controls and manages us, which is why it is always dangerous. So what Paul's saying here when he says that love is not easily angered, he's not suggesting that love is never angry. Rather, he's just saying it's not easily angered. It isn't quick to respond to the petty things of life and the little irritations. And all of us in here are prone to irritate one another in some way, shape, or form, because we're all so weird in many respects. <laughs> and some, some of you are chronically late. That irritates people. Some people, some people it doesn't irritate. Some of you talk too much. Some of you don't talk at all. That can provide a certain amount of irritation. Some of you don't meet up to other people's expectations. I know I don't meet up to everybody's expectations, and that can cause frustration and irritation. And I think Paul is basically saying, you know, love is able to take those things in stride, the petty things in life in stride. That is, we don't sweat the small stuff. That's what Christian love does not do. I think it's what the wisdom of Proverbs would say, that wisdom gives a man patience, but it is to his glory to overlook an offense. Be able to not sweat the small stuff in your marriage and not sweat the small stuff in your church, not sweat the small stuff at work. Not getting irate and pulling out a gun and shooting at somebody because he cut you off on the freeway. Or not yelling at your wife because she left the cap off the toothpaste again. I mean, that's, that's getting easily angered over petty stuff. Christian love doesn't do that. It just takes that stuff in stride. You know how much more friendly the world would be? People just took that petty stuff in stride and just said, hey, you know, that's, we're, we're different. That's okay. Love is not easily angered, quickly angered by the petty stuff of life. But what about, here's the question, and this really gets to where it gets dicey and where it kind of inserts itself into human experience and touches on a lot of deep pain. What about when there is a serious injury, a serious offense? What happens when there is a deep laceration to the human heart that you just can't get over? I mentioned some of them before, a past divorce, um, sexual abuse in the past, physical abuse as a child, um, rejection by a mother or by a father, things that just rock your world. How does, how does love deal with that? I understand not being easily angered over the petty stuff of life, but what about the deep things that do cause a sense of justified anger? And here, Paul would say, and he gives, this is a, how can I say it? This is a radical description of Christian love. It is radical, and it's very difficult to live out, especially when the pain goes deep. As he says, here's how love lives in a world where you have been injured deeply, painfully, and it continues to smolder. He says, love keeps no record of wrongs. That's the second phrase. 
first one has to do with not being easily angered by the petty stuff of life. That is, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. But the second one, love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, the fact that he says wrongs, that's a moral word. He's talking about legitimate injuries of sin. That is, lies, um, betrayal, those kinds of things that just rip your heart out. That's what he's talking about. Love keeps no record of wrongs committed against you. And what does that mean, that it keeps no record of wrongs? Well, in one sense, it's loving people in the same way that God chose to love us. The same word here translated, does not keep a record, is the same word that Paul would use in his second letter to the same church, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, where he said that God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, that is, he brought the world to himself, that's peace, not counting men's sins against them. Same word, counting men's sins against them. So essentially, God has, because of the death of Jesus, no longer counts our sins at all. It doesn't think of them as belonging to us. That's how he treats us because of Jesus. And he's simply saying that that kind of love that God loved us with is now the love we're to love each other with. The same kind of love. It stands to reason if God himself is love and his spirit is in us, then we will begin to love as God has loved us. Namely, not counting sins against each other. Which I think has to do with this. And this is a a part of the definition I'll add on to it. The two, and he's talking about forgiveness, not keeping a record of wrongs. That forgiveness is essentially this, and that is to surrender to God one's right to personal vindication, personal vengeance, or the position of condemning judge. Let me just say that again. Each part is important. It is forgiveness and not keeping a record of wrongs is surrendering to God one's right to personal vengeance, the pursuit of personal vindication, or the position of condemning judge in the case of somebody's sin against you. But let me go a little bit deeper here, because I think a lot of us have a difficult time getting our minds around what forgiveness actually is and when we've attained it, or when we've actually forgiven and released it. The word, I think, again, translated, keep a record of wrongs, is insightful, because it is a word having to do with thought processes. Um, that when he uses it of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, he's talking about the way that God thinks. He no longer chooses to remember. The Greek word is logizomai, which we, we derive the word logic. It's a way of thinking, a process of thought. He uses the same word, follow me here for a second, because there's fruit in this. Um, later in the same chapter 13, he uses the same word, translated, keep no record of wrongs. Verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Same word. In other words, what he is saying to us, and I think this is the implication, is that forgiveness is largely consigned to the realm of the mind. Namely, we resolve and commit no longer to think about another person's offense and dwell on it. Now, that, I think, is important. 
Because if you're like me, and I haven't met anybody who's not like me in this respect, I cannot will myself not to feel something. I would love when I'm angry to reach into my heart and go flick and turn it off. When you find yourself depressed, another feeling, I love to just reach in and go click, now I'm happy. We do not have that kind of direct command over our emotions. But filled with the Spirit of God, we do have largely the ability to control what we think about, what we entertain, and what we harbor. So if what he's saying here is that it is a commitment of the mind, a resolve of the mind that I'm no longer going to dwell on this event When it comes up, I am going to surrender it each time. Then I believe that consists of forgiveness. That I choose to think about somebody who has personally hurt me, no longer in the old category of they are condemned and I hate them, picturing them being hit by a bus. And now I'm thinking of them as they are a child of God, they are loved by God, and if they're a believer, they are and stand perfectly righteous before him. So I'm going to think those thoughts about that person And not allow the old smoldering thoughts, waking up in the middle of the night, trying to figure out how you're going to win this race of vindication or how somehow fantasizing about them falling off a cliff or getting cancer and dying early. Um, That also, by the way, on the negative side, will tell you if you haven't really let it go and if you haven't really forgiven. Forgiven is that you keep taking it back and you allow yourself to fantasize about someone's demise. Or you replay it over and over and over again. You wake up in the middle of the night and find yourself seething with frustration because you just keep rehashing it over and over. That is a sign that you have not reckoned it gone, that you have not resolved and committed yourself not to think that way. Now, I'm not saying that that's easy, and I'm not saying it happens in a single day or a single hour, but it is a process, and it is a resolve of the mind and the heart, that I am no longer going to think of this person this way. So putting that together, I think forgiveness is, for us, that mental resolve regarding an injury committed against us, regardless of what it is or how deep it is, it is is the mental resolve to surrender each time to the Lord my right to personal vengeance, vindication, and the position that I have established myself as condemning judge. I release it to him. And I've made a mental commitment to release it to him. That, I believe, is the closest thing to forgiveness that I can think of. Now, at this point, let me just tell you what I, this is also important, what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Any more than God forgets our sin. God's omniscient. He knows everything. He will never, ever be able to, by nature of his character, forget Everything or something. God never forgets our sin, but he chooses not to remember it. So it doesn't mean forgetting. You'd have to, I don't know, hit your head with a bat and lose your memories. It's not failing to, it's not forgetting. It's, it's, it's choosing not to remember, not to dwell on, not to allow your mind to smolder um, with those thoughts. Second, forgiveness is not Um, to be associated with no more pain. That is, oftentimes, if the wound is deep, the pain will continue on longer after you've resolved, I'm not going to think about this person in this way anymore, and I'm releasing it to the Lord. 
So, for example, if I get hit by a drunk driver driving home today, and my son is killed, I am bound by Christian love, and hopefully by the grace and the power of the Spirit, to release my own personal desire for vengeance to him. That's what I'm called to do, releasing it to him. But it doesn't bring my son or daughter back. And so that pain will go with me for the rest of my life. Forgiveness is not the denial of one's pain. It isn't. Third, forgiveness is not. We fail to get this one wrong. It either ends in tragedy or in a heap of guilt. That forgiveness is not to be equated with the restoration of trust or even fellowship. If someone comes, I invite somebody into my home and they have a problem with stealing and they steal my money or they're a child molester and they come in and they molest my children, I am bound if I am loving and forgiving, because love forgives, then I must release that, as hard as it may be, to the Lord. But I'm not going to let them carry my wallet or babysit my kids again. Because forgiveness does not imply the restoration of trust. But I do want to say just a word, and I... I spent a little bit more time on this point because it's, uh, I just know too many people and I know too much pain is out there. The cost of not releasing it, the cost of not forgiveness, not forgiving, is astronomical. That's why the scripture, while it does give us the command to be angry yet do not sin, tells us over and over again, Get rid of it and deal with it as quick as you can. So Paul in Colossians 3.8 can say, get rid of anger, rage, and bitterness. He can say again in Ephesians 4.31, he says the same thing, get rid of anger. Um, we're told by Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7.9 that um, anger resides in the heart of a fool, that he takes it in like this hot, searing coal, thinking that it's not a big deal. But in the end, it consumes his life. We're told in James chapter 1 that anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. It doesn't go in the right direction. And even in the place where Paul says, be angry yet do not sin, he's really careful right after saying, there's a time to be angry. He goes on to say, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, get, get, deal with it quickly before the, the day ends. And then he goes on to tell why that's important. He says, don't give a foothold to the devil in your life. The idea being, if there is a lingering, a fermentation of anger in one's life because of some deep wound, then in the end, what ends up happening is the devil fortifies a position in your life. I mean, that's the idea of a foothold, and foothold in military terms is like taking ground, and then from that ground, establishing a base, and then taking more ground. It's basically saying, listen, there's times to be angry, but make sure you deal with it as quickly as possible, because it will dominate you, it will control you, and it will manage your life, and it will give the devil a foothold, a fortified position in your life, from which then he will advance to other places. That's how dangerous it is. So you've got to deal with it quickly. I know some of us in our pride think we can manage and hold it in. But anger is one of those dangerous things that metastasizes to all of our other relationships. 
We think that, hey, if I have an issue with Dan Overby, for example, and I'm angry with him, sorry, I just picked you out of the hat, it's easy for us to think, well, that's just, I'm just angry with him. So it's just compartmentalized and it's like somehow cemented in and it's not going to affect my relationship with my wife. But if I'm deeply angry with him, that anger continues to ferment and I go home and my wife says, hey, sweetheart, would you mind with the dishes? What do you think? Well, sometimes. I might say, why don't you stop barking orders at me? Now, my wife has asked me nicely, but why am I upset at her? It's not because she did anything wrong, it's because I'm angry at him. That is, it, 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 it boils over into other areas of life. Next thing you know, you're kicking the dog and the, and the kids because you're angry at somebody else. It's, it, that's, that's, it's, it's malignant. Don't think that anger at one person is not going to destroy other relationships. It will. That's why you give it, you harbor it, the pain that results in anger. The pain itself is not wrong, but allowing it to ferment into anger and bitterness, it will poison your entire life and all of your relationships. That's the cost of not releasing it to the Lord. Love forgives. Love keeps no record of wrongs. How does love live in an an evil world? How does Christian love respond in your particular situation, in your past, in your present? By the grace of God, it lets it go. And it trusts it to the Lord. And then the third, and this is the final, I'm just going to um, take these two together because they are grammatical pairs. Um, so how does love deal with an evil world? It, on the one hand, it, it doesn't get easily angered over the small stuff. When it comes to the big stuff, it doesn't hold on to it. It releases it to the Lord. And then the final one is this dual pair of verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Those are kind of flip sides of the teeter-totter. It's telling us what love delights in, what it enjoys, and on the other hand, what it doesn't enjoy. He tells us that true Christian spirit-generated love doesn't delight in evil. In other words, it, it doesn't inwardly smile or find a sense of satisfaction in the demise or the fall or the defects of other people. Now, that's an important statement right there because we are, because we're twisted, we are inclined, especially if there's some sense of competition between you and somebody else, we are inclined to inwardly smile or find satisfaction in someone that we compare ourselves to getting knocked down a notch. Never say it that way because we'd be admitting that we're twisted. But make no mistake about it, it is, it is a, a worldly sinful response to delight in the failing of another person and not its contrast, which is to be broken and and mourn over it. Um, You well know this, that our culture feeds. It feeds in a pleasurable way on the demise of people. We have massive billion-dollar industries given to indulge the appetite of the American people with the failings, moral failings, of both politicians and celebrities. Our culture right now is feeding on and enjoying the multiple affairs of Tiger Woods. It is a pleasure. It is a delighting in a man's failure, repeated failure. Christian love, Paul saying, doesn't operate that way. 
doesn't take pleasure in it. It is sincerely broken and mourns over it. It sees Tiger's wife and realizes here's a woman who is experiencing those deep, deep, profound pains of betrayal. Did it rock her world? It mourns the fact that there's a little girl and a baby boy that are going to be devastated by this man's decisions. Love doesn't delight in those things. It mourns. It's either angered by or it mourns and is broken and considers how painful sin is in human life. Perhaps that's why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. They mourn because they love people and they sympathize with the brokenness of sin and the results of sin. So next time you are watching a television show like, I don't know, Entertainment Tonight, or reading a People magazine and watching or reading those things aren't necessarily wrong, monitor your heart and ask yourself, Am I delighting in this, which isn't love? Or am I broken over this and am I praying for them? Love, love, he says, does not delight in evil. But the positive side, it does delight. It does enjoy seeing another person make progress. And I think that's what's in mind when it says that love rejoices in the truth. He's not talking about some philosophical abstract information. But it's the opposite of evil. It doesn't delight in evil, that is, moral decisions and so forth, but does rejoice and delight in truth, namely, people's lives growing in conformity with the gospel. So that we're actually, there's this genuine sense of excitement that I've seen someone, you know, take a new step in in humble obedience to the Lord. I've seen them overcome a sin, or I've seen new measures of joy in their life. That's what Christian love does. It actually rejoices in someone's life being conformed and growing in the truth. Church would be an amazing place if people focused more on rejoicing in in even the incremental growths of people than always bemoaning and complaining about how far we have to go or how how messed up we all are. Just sees little things and rejoices. So you have, have here how love exists and lives in a world plagued with evil, personal injury and pain. Namely, and put in my own words, doesn't sweat the small stuff, lets go the big stuff, doesn't enjoy the bad stuff, but it rejoices in growth, in grace. That's how love lives, and that's how love triumphs in a world dominated by evil. That's how evil is overcome by good. That's what he teaches now, I recognize, I just want to take and close with this. I realize that there's some are probably asking the question, and I don't know what's in your past or what's in your present. Some are probably thinking and wondering how that's possible. How can I let go of this? I've tried and tried and tried, and I just can't do it. My father was abusive. He was angry. How do I let that go? And I just want to offer two things. They're not meant to be cliche, but I believe in them. They don't make it easy, but it does make it possible. In the end, the only way we can truly forgive even the deepest of pains, and I believe we can, is by faith. 
Faith that moves in one or two directions. Trusting that God is just and remembering his mercy. We don't simply release it out into the air, an evil or an injustice. As I said in the definition, we release it and surrender it to God himself. That if you believe and have a conviction and the Spirit has convinced you of the fact that one, God knows and is deeply and painfully aware of every sin committed on planet Earth. Two, that he sympathizes with your pain as the victim of it. And three, that he will vindicate you in the end as a believer and he will avenge that injury either at the cross in the case of a believer or in the prison of hell in the case of an unbeliever. If you believe that, then you can trust him to do the right thing. And you can release it because you know he'll take care of it. I mean, that's, that, that was what Jesus modeled for us. No one else in human history suffered as much emotional, spiritual, or physical abuse as he did. And yet somehow, and he was fully God, yes, but also fully human with all of the feelings that we have, he was able to say to those people who had injured him emotionally, physically, and spiritually, Father, forgive them. Don't hold it to their account. How was he able to do that? How could Jesus do that if he truly is human? First Peter gives us the answer. Chapter 2, verse 23. That Jesus absorbed these things by entrusting himself to the one he knew judges justly. In other words, he trusted the justice of God. He will take care of it. So if, by the power of grace and spirit, you can manage by faith to say, Lord, I trust you with the justice of the situation, whether it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it happened yesterday. You got it covered. Then you will be able to release it. You may have to do that every day to begin with. It may have to be every hour to say, I surrender it to your justice. I surrender it to your justice. The only other option is that you take it to yourself and poison your life. And you're not, you cannot manage and control that kind of anger long term. It will destroy you. God can take care of it. So, so here, let me, let me just be personal. If you're one of those people that say, yeah, I have something in my past I just haven't let go, let me say what I think the Lord would want me to say to you. You want me to say to you? Trust me with it. I've got it covered. Trust me with it. Surrender it to me. I'm bigger than you know. You can trust me with it. Saying to you, come out of the prison and into the light. For whatever reason you're holding on to it, because that anger gives you a sense of meaning, makes you feel protected, or it gives you some small semblance of control. The Lord's saying, you know what? Trust me with it. Trust me with justice. And then the flip side of that is to remember mercy. One of the things that deflates anger quicker than anything in my life is to remember how merciful God is and was to me. 
the fact that my debt against him and my personal injury against his majesty is infinite and eternal. And yet he, he relinquished the death or my debt through the blood of his own son. So that mercy runs so deep. And when my heart begins to sense just how deep it runs for me in my own personal stuff, recognizing that without God and without mercy in my life, I'm just kind of a steaming pile of bubbling sin goo. That's what I am. That's all I am. And to recognize and meditate on on scriptures like Psalm 103, where the psalmist says, Do not forget all your benefits. Do not let my soul forget all your benefits that... You, Lord, have forgiven all of my sins, that you have healed all of my diseases, that you have redeemed my life from the pit, and you have crowned me with steadfast love and mercy, and you have satisfied me with goodness. When mercy overflows and you remember mercy, then it's far easier to humbly let go of the arrogant judge in my mind and to see anger flee. So again, I just, I imagine my names come to mind. People, you might even see this Christmas. And the Lord's just saying to you, that this Christmas in which we celebrate peace and love and joy, release it to me and my justice. And remember, remember the depth of my mercy in your life. Then you'll find, I think, the motivation to surrender whatever it is to the Lord. Will you do that this morning? I'm going to pray for you. Father, just do your work. I just pray that the truth would not be um, overturned void. I pray that people wouldn't forget it as soon as they walk out of this these doors, but do some serious wrestling with you and and if they have to fight the fight of forgiveness each day, each hour to surrender it to you who is perfectly just and good and also merciful, then I pray you give them the strength to do that. And perhaps this Christmas they will be able to live um, at a new level of peace that they haven't yet experienced. So just do your work, Lord God, and we just rejoice for those who have decided to follow you and trust you and trust your justice and trust your mercy and follow you in, in obedience and being baptized. And we just offer it up now in Jesus' name. Amen.